0: Isaiah 40 verse 8 reminds us that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And so if you have your Bible with you this morning, and I hope you do, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to start looking at verses 7 through 11 this morning, which mark an important transition in our study of this book of 1 Peter. You see, in this letter we've been learning what essential Christianity really looks like from one of Christ's closest followers, the Apostle Peter. And the first thing that Peter showed us, if you remember back in chapter 1, verse 3, is that essential Christianity looks like a divine miracle at its heart. It looks like something that God does. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ that we proclaim is the good news, not of what we can do for God, but what God can do for us. Namely, he can cause us, as chapter 1, verse 3 says, to be born again by his great mercy and power through the saving work of Jesus Christ. He can push us out of spiritual darkness and death and doom, and he can push us into a whole new experience of spiritual light, life, and hope. He can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He can cause us to be born again and be made alive together in Christ Jesus, headed towards eternal glory. He can make us elect exiles. And when God does that, it completely transforms everything about us from the inside out. 2 Corinthians 5.17 states, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are becoming new. As those who have been born again through faith in Jesus Christ, our entire lives begin to change from the inside out because Christ's life is in us. And that change begins to transform everything about us on the outside too. It affects how we respond and how we ought to respond first to God, as chapter 1 verses 13 through 21 showed us. It also affects how we ought to respond to believers. That was in chapter 1 verses 22 through 25 it affects how we ought to respond to ourselves chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 how to respond to the world chapter 2 verse 11 into chapter 3 verse 22 and as we saw last week in chapter 4 verses 1 through 6 it it changes how we ought to respond to trials sufferings and hardships that come into our lives starting today we're going to begin seeing that being born again ought to change radically change how we respond also to the times in which we're living being born again affects how we respond to the times. And this is a big part of Peter's letter, at least it will be from now until the end of his letter. You see, if I was to take a big step back, and if I was to try to summarize absolutely everything that Peter has been instructing us to do over the last year and a half, it would be this. As elect exiles, we are to live holy, humble, and happy, hope-filled lives for the glory of God. That's what First Peter has been teaching us. That as elect exiles we ought to live holy, humble, and happy, hope filled lives for the glory of God. First, we're to live holy lives. We saw this in the first section of 1 Peter where Peter instructed us, As he who called you is holy, so also you be holy in all of your conduct, knowing that you have been ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish and without spot. As elect exiles, we're to live holy lives in this world for the glory of God. Second, we're to live humble lives. We saw this in the second section of this book when Peter writes things like, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution honor the emperor. Be subject to your masters with all respect. Be subject to your own husbands. Show honor to your wives. As elect exiles, we are to live humble lives for the glory of God. And third, we're to live happier, hope-filled lives as well. We saw this in the third section of this book when Peter writes things like, whoever desires to love life and see good days Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit, and then to be ready always to give a reason for the hope that is in us. As elect exiles, we are to live holy, humble, and hope-filled lives for the glory of God. And while telling us how to do that, Peter has also been faithful in giving us four main reasons or motivations why to do that. In other words, why we ought to live a holy, humble, and hope-filled life for the glory of God and the salvation of the lost. The first motivation is the cross. The cross of Christ is the first motivation in the Christian life. Peter says in chapter 1, verses 17 through 19, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exiles. Why? Knowing that you were ransomed. How? With the precious blood of Christ. So live a holy, humble, and hope-filled life in this world because of the cross of Christ. The second motivation for us To live as Christians is the church, the church of Christ. Peter says in chapter 2 verse 9 that we are to live lives that proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why? Because we are members, he says, of a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. We are living stones that have become aligned to Christ. We are living stones being built up into a temple for the glory of God and so live a holy, humble, and hope-filled life because of the cross of Christ and because of the church of Christ. The third motivation that Peter has given us in the Christian life is the commission of Christ the commission of Christ. Peter says in chapter 3, verse 15, he says, in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, the Lord is holy. Why? So that you're always ready, always prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with gentleness and respect. In other words, so that you're always ready and prepared to share the gospel, to obey the great commission Christ has given you. So that's why you ought to live a holy, humble, and hope-filled life. It's because of the cross of Christ, the church of Christ, the commission of Christ, and then finally, the fourth motivation that Peter gives in this letter for living the Christian life the way God instructs us here in this letter, the fourth motivation is because of the coming, the coming of Christ. Starting with this morning's passage, Peter is going to finish his letter with quite a few final instructions. And the underlying motivation he gives for carrying out all of these final instructions is given here at the beginning of verse 7, where Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. So that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to study Peter's instructions on how to live, not just as exiles, but as end-time exiles for the glory of God. As believers who are living at a time and when the end of all things is at hand, How ought we to live? And there are three ways that Peter says that we are to live in light of the times that we are living in. Three ways that we are to live as end-time exiles. And that is, first, we are to have an end-times awareness. You are to be aware of the time that you're living in. That's at the very beginning of verse 7. Second, we are to have an end-times attitude. That is, at the end of verse 7 into the beginning of verse 11, and that constitutes the majority of our passage, And then third, we are to have an end times aim. And that's at the end of verse 11. So if we're going to live in this world for the glory of God, then that means that we have to look at this idea of time completely different than the rest of the world. We don't look at time as cyclical like those in the East. We don't look at time as unending like those who are naturalistic. We look at time as having a beginning and as having an end for the glory of God. Being born again means we look even differently at the times in which we're living. If we're going to live in this world... For the glory of God, we need to respond rightly to the times that we're living in by living as end times exiles. Have an end times awareness. The end of all things is at hand. Have an end times attitude of being serious in prayer. We're going to see substantive in love and spirited in service and have an end times aim to glorify God and to manifest his power in absolutely everything we do. And this is how we live as end time exiles for the glory of God. So with that in mind, if you're able... Please stand with me out of reverence for the Word of God as I read our passage this morning from 1 Peter chapter four, verses seven through eleven. The Apostle Peter and in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit writes these words to us today. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore. whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of God which guards our ways and keeps them pure in the sight of our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word this morning. Thank you that it breaks through the chaos and the confusion of this world. And it reminds us of the times that you have called on us to live in. Father, help us not to dismiss this passage. Help us to embrace it wholeheartedly by faith so that we would live at such a time as this, for the glory and honor of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So Peter says, if you and I are going to live a holy, a humble, and a hope-filled life for the glory of God here on earth, then that means we've got to first be struck and be possessed with an end times awareness. Peter says at the beginning of verse 7, The end of all things is at hand. Now, if that phraseology seems to strike you as a bit extreme and archaic and bizarre for a pulpit in a church and maybe more suited for some poster out on the street corner, I get it. Because of the influence of individuals like Camping and Kahn and Gaines and others who have made people jump every time there's a red moon in the sky, Mainstream evangelicalism has almost entirely avoided, for the last 10 to 15 years, the subject of eschatology, that is, of end times. There's been so much abuse and misuse of Scripture that many Christians today who have neglected its study out of the rightly recognized, often unbiblical divisiveness of the subject and of the past, now don't often think about the return of the Lord at all. We've steered away from one error, I would contend, only to drive right off into the ditch of another. Like the dwarves at the end of C.S. Lewis's book, The Last Battle, we're so ab- afraid of being taken in again that we have fallen into an error we cannot be taken out of. We've gone from waiting for our blessed hope and loving His glorious appearing, as Scripture instructs us to do, to shrugging our shoulders as practical agnostics and saying, "Eh." It'll all pan out in the end. I don't need to think about it. Well, Peter blows up that agnostic approach to the return of the Lord, quite frankly, here in verse seven. And he thrusts to the forefront of our minds a biblical awareness that all of us as elect exiles are to be constantly living under. And that awareness is this. The end of all things is at hand. Now, I know you're thinking at this point, okay, pastor, this is where you start telling me that Peter really doesn't mean what he's saying here, and like Star Wars, it's only true from a certain point of view. I'm not going to. It's the lies of scoffers, I would remind you, who are saying all things will continue just as they have been since the beginning of creation, according to 2 Peter 2, verse 4. And I don't think that belongs in a church at all. Such a view is not true. Believer, I would encourage you not to be captivated by such a deception. Don't live under that lie. Live under the truth. And this is the truth because this is what Peter says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit into something that all of you need to be aware of this morning. If we're going to live in this world for the glory of God and be motivated to reach the lost around us, the end of all things is at hand. And that is just as true as the sky is blue. The end of all things is at hand. And if you can't wholeheartedly, as a believer this morning, because of your own theologies that you built up, not be able to say strongly amen to that, you might want to re-examine your theology. The end of all things is at hand. This is what Peter says. And by speaking of, by the way, the end of all things here, Peter isn't describing the destruction of all things or the termination of all things. That word end is actually telos in the Greek, and it means the fulfillment of something. It means the completion of a certain plan or purpose. And that's pretty awesome when you think about it because what Peter's saying here is that all things have a purpose. Absolutely everything in this universe plays a part of some grand plan. There's no inconsequential moments that have ever occurred. There's no chance encounters. There is no irreverent, irrelevant people. Absolutely everything in this universe is building up to a grand, great climax and culmination. As Proverbs 16.4 says, the Lord has made everything for its purpose. And C. S., as C.S. Lewis expressed it, this life that we're now living is just the cover and a title page that's building up to the beginning of the real story which goes on forever and ever, in which every chapter is better than the one before it. That's a wonderful reminder that we need to be reminded of this morning when we're looking at the chaos of the world that we're living in. Everything is working together towards and leading up to God's good purposes. As A.W. Tozer once wrote, while it looks like things are out of control, behind the scenes there is a God who has not surrendered his authority. And that's what Peter's saying here. Everything around us, everything we see, Everything you hear, everything we experience around us in our world today, both the big things that catch the awareness of the nightly news and the little things that you don't even think about at the end of the day, absolutely everything is driving inescapably towards a climactic conclusion and Peter's saying the grand fulfillment of that plan is at hand. It's imminent, it's about to arrive. And Peter's clearly referring to Jesus' return here. That is the only end of all things that he could be thinking about here because Scripture is clear. Jesus is the only one who brings about fulfillment in anything and in all things. He's the only one. See, if you're here this morning and you're trusting in anything else in this world to bring about purpose and meaning and fulfillment in your life, then you will sadly be disappointed because only Jesus Christ, God the Son, can. And that is true not only in your own life, but also for the entire universe as well. Ephesians 1, 9 through 9-10 tells us that God set forth in Christ a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Or again, in Colossians 1, 20, through Christ, God will reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. As 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20 tells us, all the promises of God find their yes and amen in him. In fact, Revelation 5, 1 through 5 reveals this very moment that Peter's referring to here when we and, and in Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, what we see is we see Jesus walk up to the throne of heaven, and he takes the He takes hold of the title deed of the universe right out of Him who is seated on the throne, and by breaking its seals, He brings all of history's timelines to a dramatic conclusion. That is what the book of Revelation is all about. It's awesome. If you haven't read the book of Revelation lately, you really should do it. Don't be scared of it. It is given for your edification, for your blessing. Peter told us last week in verse 5 that Jesus is ready to do that. He is ready. James 5 verse 9 says he is standing at the door. And now in verse 7, Peter's saying, Brothers and sisters, that moment is at hand. It's just around the corner. It's just about to arrive. Now, for many of you, you will probably hear that and immediately think, okay, Peter, I get it. That's motivating and all that, but the end of all things is at hand. It's been nearly 2,000 years. Isn't that a little overstating things? And I want you to know that no, it's not. Especially when you consider within what era those past 2,000 years have passed. Listen to 1 John 2.18. Astonishing verse. In 1 John 2.18, the Apostle John writes these words, Children, it is the last hour. In other words, when the Apostle John wrote the book of 1 John, nearly 2,000 years ago, the last hour had already begun. It began, in fact, the moment that Jesus died. I mean, have you ever wondered why all these end-time signs showed up at the very moment of Jesus' death on the cross? When Jesus died, we're told in Luke 23, verses 44-45, through 45, that just as it was reaching its full strength, the sun's light suddenly failed, and the whole land of Israel was struck and covered in darkness. We're told in Matthew 27, 51-53, that there was a great earthquake that took place in Judea, and then there was even a resurrection from the dead around Jerusalem of people coming up out of their graves. Now, all of those were, I need to admit, they are limited signs, right? They weren't global ones, like the ones that are described in Joel, Amos, Zephaniah, and Revelation. There wasn't a worldwide darkness. There wasn't a worldwide earthquake. There wasn't a worldwide resurrection from the dead, as there will be one day. But those were still end-time signs nonetheless, unmistakable. And what was God trying to communicate in that moment? He was communicating that Jesus' death inaugurated the era of the last days. To put it... In more biblical language, those signs during Jesus' death was the first contraction that ushered in the last days. Ladies and gentlemen, we are end-time exiles. And since Christ's death, those contractions, those labor pangs, as Jesus uses the term in Matthew 24, verse 8, have been steadily increasing in intensity, severity, and rapidity for nearly 2,000 years until today take a look around you if you put your ear to the bible and then you look around at the world you'll see the labor pangs all around we're living in the last days of the last days we can truly say the end of all things is at hand and i would contend not only in relation to jesus's death but in israel becoming a nation less than one generation ago which according to Ezekiel 38, 8, and 16 would happen after many years in the last days of the last years. And frankly, we can say that just by looking at the state of the world that we're living in. Whether we look backwards, forwards, around us, when we look at Scripture, we must come to the same conclusion that Peter does here. That we are closer now to the return of Christ than we ever have been. And that we, are closer to, that we are living closer to the return of Jesus than any generation who has ever lived. The end, the fulfillment, the consummation of all things is eminent. It's at hand. And out of all the generation of believers who have come before us, we ought to be the most aware of and feel the weight of that reality more than any other generation that's come before us. Including Peter's original audience, we've had 2,000 years of pressure building up. <laughs> We ought to, out of all generations, be looking for our blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ought to be, out of all generations, patiently waiting and establishing our hearts in faith for the coming of the Lord. We ought to be, out of all generations, straightening up and raising our heads because our redemption is drawing near. Why? Because the end of all things is at hand. He is coming, as Hebrews 9.28 says, to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He's coming soon. And we need to be living under an awareness of that truth if we're going to be living our lives rightly for the glory of God. If you're not living under an awareness of that truth, then you're not living the Christian life as God designed you to be. Now, what does it look like to do that? To live... Like an end-time exile who's aware of the time in which we live. Well, that's what the next section of this passage is all about. And I didn't have time to cover it this morning. (laughs) So come back next week. No. But until then, let me tell you this morning, in advance for next week, what it doesn't look like. Okay? So here's what it doesn't look like. It doesn't look like quitting your job, selling your house, Putting on your PJs and going to sit up at the top of the mountain waiting for Jesus to come back sometime, okay? That's not what it looks like to live as an elect time, as an end time exile. No, think about it. How ought we to think about the return of Christ? We ought to think about it in this way, that we are headed to a climax, that scripture tells us the end of all things is going to bring all things where? To the feet of Jesus. Jesus. All the timelines of history are going to bow down to him. Philippians 3.21 tells us that he's going to subject all things to himself. And 1 Corinthians 15.27 tells us that God is going to put all things underneath his feet. Well, listen, if this is where all things are heading, then is that where we should be putting all of our time and energy into now? Yes. Yes surrendered to the will and wonder of Jesus, no matter the cost. I want you to consider that if every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord someday to the glory of God the Father, then shouldn't that be what we're confessing right now? To our family members and to our friends, to our classmates and our co-workers, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father? If this is how all of us will be one day before Christ then this is how we ought to be living right now. If this is how all time will one day be redeemed, then isn't this how my time should be redeemed right now? Focused on the person and purposes of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, being aware that the end of all things is at hand does not call us to disengage from our world, as some people would wrongly assume. It calls on us to engage in our world for the glory of God and for the cause of the gospel. It motivates us to keep our lamps burning, to keep our zeal hot, to keep our focus sharp, to keep our lives pure, and to keep our love warm. Beloved, we are going to look at specifics next week, but I want to leave you with this. This thought, how should the thought that Christ's return is at hand affect how I'm living over this next week? how should it affect first your repentance from sin and from vain interests? Is that really what you want to be found out doing when the Lord returns? How should it affect your diligence and your devotion to Jesus Christ right now? Or would you want to be found focused on lesser things when he returns how should it affect your focus in relationships and your courage and evangelism or would you want to be found retreating from the testimony of the gospel in the lives of those you love the most when christ returns how should it affect your dreams and your decisions your attitudes and ambitions right now because it needs to As 1 John 3, 3 states, everyone who hopes in him purifies himself even as he is pure. We need to consider this morning and acquire the awareness of what if it was today? Because it could be. We'll look at next week, should the Lord tarry, that this blessed hope and this end times awareness should make us serious in prayer. It should make us substantive in love. And it should make us spirited in our service. But for now, if you and I are going to glorify God as we ought to at such a time as this, then our hearts need to sing with the melody of Psalms 130, verse 6, that my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. The night is far gone and the day is at hand. If we're going to live holy, humble, happy, hope-filled lives for the glory of God and the salvation of the lost, then we need this end times awareness every day. Because, beloved, the time is short. The Lord is coming. The door will close. And the end of all things is at hand. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. And I want to leave you with that. I want all of us to walk into this next week with the awareness that Jesus Christ could appear in this next moment. M. I ready. This is the word of God from 1 Peter 4, verse 7, which I now commit to your further study and your faithful obedience and the fervent care of one another until Christ returns and he brings about a fulfillment of all things. To that end, let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for reminding us of this one simple truth. Father, I know that we know that theology affects living and father we know that to hope in the return of christ causes us to be to pursue holiness and so father i pray that this week you would begin the work in our hearts Help us not to be scoffers. Help us to take a serious look at your word. To take a serious look at your world. And to come to the conclusion that the end of all things is at hand. And help us, Father, from that motivation, seek to bring everything beneath the feet of the coming Lord Jesus Christ. Father, there are sins that right now your people need to kill at the feet of Jesus Christ. There are priorities and dreams and idols that your people need to defeat and to cast down before the feet of Jesus. There are tasks and priorities that we must give ourselves as Christ has instructed us to. Father, help us not to look at your word and world and scoff at the return of Christ. Help us to heed your word and be gripped with the realization that there is indeed coming a day when the skies will be rent, when your son will descend, when his glory will be revealed. And when every tongue will confess and every knee will bow before him as Lord to your glory. Father, if that is where history is headed, then isn't that where our lives should be focused? Help us not to get distracted by the machinations of the kingdoms kingdoms of this world. Help us to seek first your kingdom and righteousness. For that is a kingdom that is surely coming and that will never pass away. Father, help us to be about what we need to be about this week if we have retreated from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think from a relationship, thinking, surely I will have more time to tell them about Jesus. Remind us that that we do not know that is true. So give us courage, Father, by your grace. Help us to live this week. Father, beneath the truth that the end of all things is at hand, help us to look forward to that and help us to work fervently in light of that for your glory and the salvation of the lost in our day. Give us this end time awareness that we might live out the rest of what Peter will instruct us for the glory of Christ. We ask this in Jesus name. Amen.